This is Potters of Color 2.0, the podcast. And this is your girl, Robbie Lobb. And today's guest is Dominique Van Zandt and Jeremiah Dixon. So, full disclosure, yes, this was recorded about a year ago. So, listen to it. As I re-edited it and check out the information that Dominique and Jeremiah share and stay tuned for the updates at the end. Those were also re-edited. So please sit back and listen and thank you so much for your patience. So they're um, 
they end up having these dimples that are like finger impressions or places for your fingers to go. Um, and part of that is when you're making pots for a while, the wheel tends to produce round and smooth things all of the time. And by adding this little mark at the end of the throwing process, I'm kind of helping myself remember that not everything is perfect um, and that everything can have a place and can fit in your hand, even if it's not perfectly round and smooth and, and uniformly circular. So I do a lot of work that's um, thrown and slightly altered, um, but I don't do a lot of surface decoration, which seems to be very popular here on the East Coast. So it's kind of a different approach to making pots. I like that. I like that um, put the heartbeat on the work. I mean, if you really wanted something symmetrical and perfect, there's a styrofoam company around here somewhere. Get a styrofoam cup. Yep. So I appreciate the fact that you are so homegrown and so organic about how your approach to pottery. And I also like to talk about how, you know, I know in my work, I'm not, I'm, I don't center all the time. And I, I like the the way that it kind of dances. On the yeah, ground. I appreciate that too. Like it's one of the things about throwing off of the hump or the mound that I really appreciate mm -hmm. is that you have that whole mass of clay and I'm often working with a bag of clay, so about 25 pounds at a time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I put on the wheel head and center. And it's a wrestling match for the first five minutes. Um, and you be beating that clay up too. I watch you. Mm -hmm. He be beating that clay down. Yeah, it's an interesting relationship because it's um, after a while of throwing, like a number of years, I don't know how long the threshold would be, but after a while you stop watching, you stop making pots and you start watching yourself make pots. Oh, cool. So it's kind of like a third person experience almost. You sit down at the wheel, you get yourself comfortable, you get going and the pots start growing and you do you do intend to make certain shapes or sizes or volumes in the pots. Mm -hmm. But, um, so there is definitely intention, mm -hmm. but it's an observation process, not an act of doing. So it's kind of a fun, fun thing, I think. That's really cool. Yeah, and so um, your pottery technique is from a Japanese-Korean style called, called Karatsu? Karatsu. Yep. Karatsu. Yeah, and the Karatsu potters are, um, it's kind of a little bit like a, what do they call that, an origin? I don't know the terminology for it. But it is, um, it's a region, it's a place, it was a style of pottery making, and it's the result of these um, Korean immigrants, I'm going to call them immigrants, but they were people who were effectively enslaved on the continent of Korea and brought over to Japan, to the southernmost islands of Japan, mm. to make, and I like to say it this way, to make pieces pleasing to the emperor of Japan. Mm. So the emperor really liked these Korean pieces. He was coveting them. Mm. And rather than just trying to get the pots, he went to the source and took entire villages of potters in the 15th century, 16th century, about 400 years ago. Wow. And um, that's about 14 generations away from where, from my experience. Mm -hmm. It turns out that that's also the same time period that the transatlantic slave trade began for the most part. 
and was really pumping people across the ocean, um, 4% of which, as far as I know, came to the United States, the rest Brazil, South America, Central America, all over. I mean, the transatlantic slave trade was gruesome. Mm -hmm. um, but so was this hostage taking of the Korean potters. In Korea, at the time, the majority of those potters were farmers. They would grow tea and other vegetables for nine months of the year, and during the winter months, they would make pots. Interesting. They were taken to Japan and told to make pots all year round. Um, and the family that taught one of my teachers was the family of Takashi Natazako. Mm. Takashi's father was a man named Wan, M-U-A-N, as far as I know. And Wan was a national treasure of Japan. Oh, wow. So that was, that's a whole nother ball of wax, national treasures. These people who are chosen to, to um, have and preserve the techniques and processes and traditions of the country and the process. So it's a really big honor um, that was bestowed by the government on this family. And they're still kind of like the secret keepers of this process. Um, most of the work is made off of the hump when they're thrown objects. But there's also a coiling and paddling tradition in the Karatsu tradition. Um, but the surface design and decoration is what makes Karatsu Karatsu. There's a lot of a technique called Mishima, which is um, incising the clay filling it with kokiki or white slip or porcelain, working that surface back so that you get this kind of cloudy, wonderful um, drawing that shows up through the surface of the pot. Um, so there is a history of embellishment of the pots, but it's always in service of function. There's no rough edges or sharp components or corners. Um, there's a lot of round circular and oval objects made in the Karatsu tradition. Interesting. And you were saying something about um, the firing of uh, for 10 days? Yeah, the St. John's Kiln, run by Richard Bresnahan, was built in 1994 called the Johanna Kiln. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, it's the largest kiln in the country. Um, it's certainly the largest kiln in the Midwest. And I've been able to travel the Midwest pretty extensively. Mm -hmm. But this is my first time to Philly. I don't know if there's anyone out here with a bus-sized kiln. But Richard's kiln is the size of a bus. Um, I think in literature it's said to be 87 feet from front to back. Um, okay, hold on a second. Because if my listeners are anything like me, we were in Japan a second ago. And now we're on a bus. Yeah, so... So we're talking, if I could, um, if I could re, you know, repeat back to you what I'm understanding. Yeah. You studied the Karatsu technique. In Minnesota. In Minnesota, which is where you're from. Yes. Um, and the Karatsu technique was a Japanese slash Korean technique. And the story of the Koreans is, it happened around the time that, African-Americans were brought to America. Sidebar, I'd like to say, wouldn't we have an interesting world if the people who enslaved African-Americans and indigenous Americans and the Koreans mm -hmm. just said, hey, 
You want to come over to my country and just make some stuff with us? Invitations instead of mandates, yeah. What is wrong with humanity? Anyway, that's just my sidebar. Um, and so when we go to Richard Bresnahan, we're mm -hmm. talking about how you learn to fire. Is there a connection between this wood firing technique and the Japanese? Yes, very much. So the kiln, um, the front chamber, the very first chamber in the Johanna kiln, which is the size of a school bus or a city bus, um, is broken up into three chambers. The first chamber of the kiln is a fairly traditional anagama. And that's a box of bricks that you put fire in on one side and the chimneys on the opposite side. In this case, there are two chambers of the kiln behind the anagama. Um, the first chamber is fired for two to three days. The second chamber is fired for one day, hopefully eight to 12 hours is what they're hoping for in that second chamber. So the heat from the first chamber, you spend three days putting wood into the front and that gets the middle of the kiln hot as well with the waste heat. And then in eight to 12 hours, you can fire that second chamber off to temperature. And by that time, the third chamber is ready to start receiving wood. And this process takes 10 days. Wow of putting wood into the kiln and approximately 30 cords of wood. And a cord of wood is a pile of wood that's four foot by four foot by eight feet long. Um, so it's a lot of wood. Yeah. That's a lot of wood. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I understand you do some kiln building. I do. I try to build kilns. Um, I'm hoping to build kilns in Simcoe, Wisconsin, which is my family's ancestral farmland. Um, in the next few years, but I've been making bricks myself um, and making pizza ovens in my backyard as tests for future brick use, like for, um, I'm testing recipes and brick styles and types um, to make pizza ovens right now. And I shouldn't really call them pizza ovens, that's the easiest lingo to, to use for me. Um, but they are small kilns. Um, they could be fired to temperature if you chose. And I think the bricks are good to cone 10 or 12. But I haven't been able to test that quite yet. Um, we have a wood firing coming up in the Tondava kiln, which is in Glencoe, Minnesota. And that I fire with a group of, there's 10 of us in this cohort that fires together. And that kiln we fire in three days' time wow. to cone 13. Um, which is very hot, and I hope to fire a number of the bricks in that firing to, to see what the service temperature is going to end up being. I know the bricks aren't going to melt, but I don't know how vitreous and friable they're going to be, uh, or friable. Um, so it's a big experiment right now with the kiln building, but it's happening. That is amazing. Dom, why don't you tell the listeners where they can contact you in case they need some information? Certainly. And they want to look at your work yeah. and maybe even get a kiln built. Yeah, I think the easiest thing to do is to visit Simcoe Pottery Works. And I know you can't see it, but I've got this little shirt on that says Simcoe Pottery Works on it. Um, but Simcoe is spelled S Y M C O. And then the two words, Pottery Works, if you put that all together in one word, .com, that's my website for the pottery business and studio that I operate. 
And then I also teach at um, Riverland Community College in Austin, Minnesota as my day job. Um, so I get to share play with young people all the time, which is really exciting and really fun. That's, what's up. that's, the, that's the one thing I've noticed about most clay people. We are really like humanitarians. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So, Mr. Dickerson, Jeremiah Dickerson, I got a chance to look at your Instagram page. Yes. Oh my goodness, you guys. He does some beautiful work. And why don't you tell us what your Instagram page is? So my Instagram is B underscore bullfrog underscore studios. Um, it's like the easiest way to reach me. I currently the only way to reach me. I will have um, my shop set up soon and that will be updated through my Instagram as well. So yes. Where did you study? I actually studied pottery when I was in high school. So I went to boarding school for visual arts in junior and senior year of high school. And they taught me a little bit of everything from printmaking to animation, painting, photography, pottery, uh, and all that. And pottery was the one thing I kind of stuck to for a bit. And it even became my senior thesis. It's part of what you saw on my Instagram. And then I actually had a heavy fascination with animation during that time as well. So I ended up going to Florida at Ringling College of Art Design for animation. Mm -hmm. I went there for two years and I realized halfway through my motion design degree that I didn't want to do animation as a full-time career. I wanted to do it as like a hobby, you know, mm -hmm. not something I'm doing 24-7, but I still had a love for pottery. So even when I was um, at, in school, uh, at college, I was teaching pottery classes on the side mm -hmm. um, for a little extra cash. And then after I uh, uh, dropped out, I COVID was actually like, a good thing for me. Like COVID was like a good stopping point, and it made me realize, like you know, like maybe this is a good time to stop because school's going online. That was way too stressful for me, and I was like, I can't uh, personally do that. That's not the way I learned. So mm. it was just a good stopping point for me. And um, I went on to teach classes, and I started building more work, and um, I really just got into this idea of experimenting and form and texture. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of what you saw, what like, I think the most I'm most proud of is the um, driftwood sense that I've done, where the Handles were made out of driftwood. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that. Probably off the, to the side, though, because, you know, I found some wood at the park, and I wanted to hook it up to a teapot, mm -hmm. and it didn't quite hook up, so I'm like, mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's interesting to both of you how clay will claim you. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. it does. It does. Latches on you. It'll wake you up. Mm -hmm. Like... You better go downstairs and get on that wheel, or else I'm just gonna drive you crazy. Exactly. It's very interesting. Like 10 o'clock at night, I'm like, I gotta go work on something. And I'm like, I should be sleeping. I'm gonna work on something. But <laughs> I gotta sleep too. Yeah. It's, it's a hard world. It's interesting. Are you dumb? Are you planning on using Mishimu, Mishimu Mishima? for your surface decorations going forward? I do. I do use it occasionally. My practice is about, I sell pots at the farmer's market through the summer, all summer long. Mm -hmm. And the farmer's market that I work at is a Saturday market called the Northeast Minneapolis Farmer's Market. And I sell pots there. About 60 to maybe even 70% of everything that I make is sold at the farmer's market. Mm, cool. 10% of it goes to galleries. Mm -hmm. And I give about 30% of what I make out to people for free i just give it away right um the work right now since graduate school has been unsigned mm -hmm. so it can be difficult to authenticate the pieces mm -hmm. um but i will start signing pieces once again very shortly and the mishima will be part of that 
ago and uh, just a day or two before the original release of the unedited version of this episode and what happened was he filled me in on a bunch of details one of which being the Kelm project that he will be starting in about a year which sounds really exciting I look forward to hearing more about that, as I'm sure you would. He also told me about the clay challenge that he did up in Tacoma, Washington State, with eight other prominent artists. It was an event or a competition. It started out as a competition. And through the collaboration and friendship and compassion of each of the artists, It became more like um, an artistic, oh, how shall I say, like a 
like a marination of artistic talent where each artist presented their talents and just became a cohesive unit of just creative clay people, which I think is marvelous. Those included in the competition were Rich Brown, Diana Adams, Brooke Felix, Gabo Martini, Hector Crete, Sierra Latso, Luann Wilson, and Dominique Van Zandt. And I just want to congratulate each one of you for elevating the idea from competition to collaboration. That is what's up. So further in reporting the updates, I hear tell that there is a widening in the spectrum for podcasters who happen to be people and potters of color. I'd like to say congratulations and welcome to this hemisphere. It was getting kind of lonely. To Justin Pike Reese and Virgil Artis, they have a podcast called Shop Colors, which comes out of the Brickyard Network and Archie Bray. I think that's great. And also, uh, there's one from a sister from Chicago who is a Philadelphian now. Her name is Gerald A. Brown, and she has started a podcast called Unraveling, which is superb. I've listened to it myself. I love it. So finally, I'd like to invite everybody to continue to send your comments and um, your referrals for potters to be interviewed to my email address at pottersofcolorpodcasts at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And also, I do a lot of looking for different ways of producing the ideas that I have. Uh, A lot of them were kind of birthed out of thin air, like when I decided to do a podcast or when I decided to do pop-up free um, art classes. You know, most of my ideas are uh, either unfunded or sparsely funded. And I'm grateful for each and every one of those ideas. But it gets a little rough when you're doing it all yourself. So I actually am always actively looking for funding, writing for grants, etc. And so what I decided I would do is to broadcast my cash app should anybody out there like to donate. Uh, my cash app is dollar sign Potters of Color podcast. 
So feel free at any time to take part in the greatest nation of the world, which is a donation. Help a sister out. That way I can do better in my uh, editing or get someone to edit because juggling all the things that I do with um, working in social services at night and then working in teaching art in the social services during the day, not to mention my own personal work and seeking other opportunities, you know, help is definitely appreciated. So make sure you send any comments or suggestions or referrals to my email, that being Podcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to donate, send your donations to dollar sign powders of color podcast i will be grateful also remember that everything that we do here is to help promote artists of color who are who just happen to be doing pottery so i would be grateful Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe to the podcast, and I'll see you in another month. Thank you.